Chapter 26 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wood Sorrel. The leaves of wood sorrel have almost the same shape as those of clover, and they can open and close, but in a way of their own. In closing, the leaf stalk generally erects itself, then each of the three leaflets droops until it hangs nearly vertical. Lastly, it bends inwards along its midrib until its under surface fits close against those of the other two. Why this difference? Why should not wood sorrel adopt the method of closing of clover or clover that of wood sorrel? I can only answer these questions doubtfully and imperfectly. Clover, when it goes to sleep, seems to be a little better screened from the cold than the wood sorrel. Clover exposes little more than one leaflet to the cold air, wood sorrel all three leaflets. Clover turns only one midrib towards the sky, wood sorrel the edges of all three leaflets, though in a sloping position. Clover inhabits perfectly open situations, while wood sorrel is overshadowed by trees. It would appear, therefore, that the leaf which, under ordinary summer conditions, is most severely tried, is most completely protected. Clover, in taking the sleep position, turns its proper under surface outwards. Wood sorrel turns the upper surface outwards. This difference is perhaps connected with a difference in the position of the stomates. In clover, the stomates are distributed over both surfaces of the leaf, being more numerous, though smaller, on the upper surface, while in wood sorrel they are restricted to the underside, which is concealed when the leaflets droop. Hence, wood sorrel, when it folds its leaves, screens all its stomates, clover only about half of them. All this accords with what we know in other ways, namely, that wood sorrel is particularly sensitive to drought, while clover endures drought very well. There is a general rule as to the sleep position of leaves, and clover observes this rule, while wood sorrel breaks it. Any common leaf which has a flattened shape and takes a more or less horizontal position by day has its two faces adapted to different functions. The upper face is crowded with chlorophyll corpuscles, and takes a darker shade of green in consequence. It is often protected from the weather by a glossy cuticle. This surface is specially adapted for the assimilation of carbonic acid. We may call it the assimilating surface. The underface of the leaf is often hairy, or in other ways rendered unwettable. The chlorophyll corpuscles are widely spaced, and the color is rendered pale by the numerous air spaces. Here are found most or all of the stomates and air spaces, and it is by this undersurface chiefly that water is exhaled and carbonic acid absorbed. Let us call it the pore-bearing surface. When a two-sided leaf takes a special sleep position, the rule is that the assimilating surface is screened as completely as possible. Clover, like most other plants, conceals its assimilating and exposes its pore-bearing surface. Wood sorrel conceals its pore-bearing and exposes its assimilating surface. The upper surface of a clover leaflet is unwettable, being protected by a waxy bloom. The lower surface is easily wetted. In wood sorrel, both surfaces, but especially the undersurface, wet with difficulty. In each case, the surfaces which are pressed together are unwettable. It might be hard to separate surfaces which had been pressed together when wet, and they would not soon dry. Make a model of a clover leaf, cutting the leaflets out of card and joining them by tapes. Paint the upper surface bright green and the lower surface pale green. This model will enable you to represent to yourself the different sleep positions of clover and wood sorrel. 
Clover and wood sorrel are strongly contrasted in almost every way. Clover seeks the sun, it does not shrink from competition with close-growing grasses, and it can even endure trampling. So long as daylight lasts, it keeps its leaflets open, and then, when there is nothing more to be got, closes them tightly. Its most conspicuous defense against the weather is one which hinders excessive heat radiation under a clear sky. Wood sorrel, on the contrary, loves shade in a damp, still air. A bank sheltered from wind and sun or the edge of a wood are among its favorite sights. The light that it prefers is checkered light, the gleams that enter through waving boughs or shine in horizontally when the sun is low. Strong sunlight, wind, and drought are all harmful to it. The very look of wood sorrel tells us how unfit it is to face rude extremes. It is pale and fragile, with tender green leaves, slight flower stalks, and petals delicately veined with purple. In one particular only does wood sorrel show an unexpected hardiness. Provided that it can get adequate shelter, it will endure arctic cold. It does not die down in winter and endures frost without even closing its leaflets. In April, not a few wood sorrel leaves which have lasted the winter through are still green and still open and close, while all the old clover leaves are dead. Wood sorrel leaves close not only by night, but whenever the sun shines full upon them, whenever they are beaten by rain or much blown upon or rudely touched by moving objects. This sensitiveness would almost hinder them from assimilating enough to keep the plant alive if the assimilating surface were to be concealed whenever they drooped. As it is, the leaves, even when closed, can profit by a weak horizontal light, the kind of light which best suits a shade-loving plant. The long leaf stalk renders the mechanism of erection and depression more effective and makes it easier to bring the leaflets into the most favorable light position. Wood sorrel is most at home where the shade of the trees is broken by frequent patches of sunlight. In such situations, the power of moving the leaf an inch this way or that may be of great value. The plane of the expanded leaf can be inclined so as to catch the light better. Woodruff, too, a plant subject to similar conditions, is enabled in a different but not less effectual way to set its leaf planes as nearly as possible at right angles to the rays of light. An organ of movement is a necessary part of the equipment of the wood sorrel leaf. Look at the enlarged base of the leaf stalk and you will find a thin ring of tissue distinct to the eye, especially when, as is often the case, the stalk is reddish and the ring pale green. The chief use of the ring in affecting leaf movements is best seen when wood sorrel growing in a garden is examined frequently. It is easy to alter the incidence of the light by cards and to show that the leaf stalk bends chiefly at the ring. Sometimes the ring is of different depth on different sides, showing that it has become permanently adapted to a particular attitude. Each leaflet has its own special organ of movement, which answers to the wrinkled stalk at the base of each clover leaflet. Just below the ring at the base of the leaf stalk is the place where the leaf breaks off at the approach of winter. The leaf base will then be found to be packed with food materials, which were formed in the leaflets, passed down the leaf stalk, and stored up as a supply for the winter. The leaf stalks and flower stalks of wood sorrel are moderately hairy. The edges of each leaflet are set with a regular row of hairs, and so are the short stalks of the leaflets. It looks as if these hairs would hinder the passage of air through the narrow space between the closed leaflets, and still further diminish the loss of water by evaporation. If you examine a leaf bud of wood sorrel, you will find that each leaflet is doubled in two, and all three are laid side by side. 
This is exactly like the folding in a clover bud. See how densely the buds are clothed with hairs, I suppose for protection in the bleak spring weather. The slender, prostrate stem spreads over the leaf mold, sending down its roots into the earth here and there. Wherever a number of leaves spring from the stem, it becomes enlarged, and every such enlargement is capable, if detached, of subsisting as an independent plant. The leaves of wood sorrel are distinctly acid, and the acid is oxalic acid combined with potash. There is much in the leaflets, still more in the leaf stalks, very little in the enlarged leaf bases. Is the acid a mere waste product, or has it a defensive function? Wood sorrel is not often bitten by insects. Stahl found that snails do not eat it, and that the leaves of favorite plants, when washed in a 1% solution of potash oxalate, are refused even by famishing snails. Though the shape of the leaves of clover and wood sorrel is so similar, it is probable that they originated in different ways. This seems to be shown by the leaves which are borne by their nearest relations. Clover belongs to the great family of leguminous or pod-bearing plants. Wood sorrel is a peculiar sort of geranium. Now leguminous plants have often pinnate leaves, composed of several pairs of leaflets, with an odd one at the tip. If we suppose the numerous pairs of leaflets which we find in most vetches, reduced to a single pair, these, together with the odd leaflet, would make a trefoil, such as that of clover. How can we tell which is the original odd leaflet in the trefoil leaf of clover? It is that one whose stalk, when extended, is in line with the main leaf stalk, and which overarches the other two when the leaf goes to sleep. Geraniums do not usually bear pinnate leaves, but their rounded leaves are often deeply cut, and in one English geranium, dissectum, each is cleft into three parts, not quite detached from one another, the lobes being subdivided by shallower notches. It is possible that in wood sorrel the same process of division has been carried a little further, and that each of the leaflets thus formed has acquired its own organ of movement. The early botanists, judging by the trefoil leaves, looked upon wood sorrel as a particular kind of clover, and even Ray so treats it. Long study was necessary before the characters which indicate real affinity could be distinguished from those which are adaptive only. Find a flower stalk of wood sorrel and look for the upper organ of movement, whose place is indicated by a small, two-pointed bract. Where the bract springs, some species of oxalis send out several flower stalks, and the minute bract of our common wood sorrel probably marks the place where the flower stalk once broke up into several. There is also a ring-like organ of movement at the base of the flower stalk. Study of the movements of the flower stalk will show you that it droops by night or when the flower is shaded, erects itself in the weather and light which encourage the petals to expand, droops after flowering, and erects itself once more for the ejection of the seeds. It is easy almost any time in summer to see the long-stalked fruits of wood sorrel pushing through the leaves. If you gather a few and lightly press them, they will perhaps go off with a faint pop, and a seed or two will shoot to a distance. After all the seeds are discharged, the fruit looks much the same as before, for the openings close up immediately. There are many plants which throw out their seeds by the twisting of the seed vessel, or by the squeezing together of its walls, or by the sudden release of the carpels, but wood sorrel is peculiar in this, that the propulsive mechanism is not contained in the wall of the fruit, but in the seed itself, which may be compared to a self-propelling bullet. 
The fruit of the wood sorrel has the general arrangement found in a field geranium. There are five carpels, side by side, surrounding a central axis. The exposed face of each carpel splits into halves, and these open like a pair of doors to allow the seed to escape, closing again immediately. There are two or three seeds in each carpel. The figures show the internal structure of the seed. Outside comes an elastic coat, in which the motive power resides. Then a number of cells, which are at first packed with starch grains, but become nearly empty at the time of discharge. Then an inconspicuous layer of very small cells, and a strong protective layer of chestnut red color, the testa, or seed coat. Within the seed coat are small cells with oily contents, which serve for the nourishment of the very young seedling, and lastly, in the center, we see the two seed leaves of the embryo. During ejection, everything outside the seed coat is suddenly peeled off, and it is this which hurls the seed to a distance. If you were to take a golf ball and sew it up in a stout India rubber covering, stretching the India rubber to the utmost as you stitched it to its place, it is easy to understand what would happen if the stitches suddenly gave way. The India rubber would recoil, first flattening out and then bending in the opposite direction, so that the concave surface would become convex, and the envelope would turn itself inside out. In doing so, it would strike the ball with the surface which lay in contact with it, hard enough, perhaps, to propel it along a table. In the wood sorrel seed, the India rubber layer is represented by the outer elastic coat. The starchy cells are mere padding, now that they have given up nearly all their contents, and the layer of small cells is that which suddenly gives way and releases the spring. It is generally taught, as for instance by Kerner in his Natural History of Plants, that the starchy layer impels the seed by its expansion, but there is reason to believe that this is not so. The elastic layer does really contract, and often breaks up in doing so. The supposed expansion of the starchy layer would imply turgidity or distension by water, but the seed goes off in alcohol, salt solution, and other liquids which strongly absorb water. Instead of the starchy layer swelling, while the elastic layer is passive, it is more likely that the elastic layer contracts while the starchy layer is passive. I have to thank Mr. T. H. Taylor for these observations on the elastic layer. A yellow-flowered wood sorrel, Oxalis corniculata, is remarkable for its worldwide distribution. It is absent only from the coldest regions. Perhaps it owes its almost universal dissemination in some measure to its singular power of scattering its seeds. The yellow wood sorrel flourishes as a weed in many gardens and greenhouses, springing up in the most unexpected places. No doubt this species is often unconsciously introduced by man, the seeds having been shot into manure heaps or pots of earth and then removed in the course of trade. Wood sorrel produces, as is well known, two kinds of flowers, one of which is small, appears late in the season, and never opens, so that it is necessarily self-pollinated. In these small, cleostogamous flowers, the stamens are short and the anthers lie close to the stigmas. Pollen tubes are emitted from pollen grains which have never left the anthers. The stalks of the cleostogamous flowers are short and bent downwards, so that they are often hidden in moss or sunk a little in the ground. As in some violets, the cleostogamous flowers are often buried beneath fallen leaves and a sprinkling of loose soil. In the far north, they must be regularly covered with snow. Long after the seeds of the aerial fruits have shot off, the subterranean fruits go on ripening. 
The first printed account of the sudden discharge of the seeds of a wood sorrel is to be found in the description of the yellow wood sorrel by John Jacob Dillon, a learned German botanist who, writing in Latin, called himself Delinius. He was brought to Oxford in 1721 by our own botanist William Sherard, formerly consul at Smyrna, and was by Sherard's will appointed the first professor of botany in Oxford. In 1732, Delenius published a great work in two folio volumes, illustrated by many fine plates engraved by his own hand, and named the Hortus Althamanus, because it described the exotic plants cultivated in Dr. James Sherard's gardens at Eltham. In this work, Delenius figures the yellow wood sorrel, for which, in those pre-Linnean days, he had no more convenient name than Oxus Ludia, Americana, Humilior et Annua. He notes that the leaves fold up at evening or during rain. The flower stalks, he goes on, at first droop, but erect themselves when the flowers expand. After flowering is over, they bend down again. The capsule is, however, erect and resembles the beaked fruit of a geranium. Each of the five carpels bears several seeds in a single row. When the seeds are ripe, the capsule bursts and forcibly throws out the rounded, reddish-brown seeds, which, when examined by a lens, are seen to be transversely wrinkled. After the seeds have been expelled, the valves by which they escaped close up, and there is no sign that they have ever opened at all. This description, though not very full, is of interest as an early observation of a natural contrivance. In Delenius's day, botanists were almost exclusively engaged upon the definition and grouping of species. To find an equally interesting account of a natural contrivance, we should have to go back to the time of the ancients. The old Greek naturalists, besides a few writers of rather later date, were attentive to these things. Let us end our lesson with a little talk about the names of the wood sorrel. What has wood sorrel to do with sheep sorrel or a sorrel horse? Sorrel means sour. Indeed, we may now and then find in old books the name of wood sour. Sheep sorrel and wood sorrel are both of them sour or acid. But how a horse of a particular color should come to be called sorrel, I could not understand till I turned to a dictionary. There I found that sorrel may stand not only for sour, but also for sear. A sorrel horse has the color of a withered leaf. Our undistinguishing forefathers mixed up two words which had nothing to do with one another, except that they were somewhat alike in sound. Alleluia is given by Ray as an old English name of wood sorrel. No doubt it got this name because its trefoil leaf, like that of the shamrock, was regarded as a symbol of the Trinity. End of chapter 26